When I was in university, I had a roommate, and perhaps like many of you, I was not entirely compatible with my roommate. <laughs> Among the things that he would do would be to smoke marijuana. And he would perform this action, which I learned about, which in English we call hotboxing. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but essentially this is where you close off the vent for the air conditioning, and you put a towel underneath the door, and then you smoke so much that it fills the entire room with the smoke. And this way, you don't have to continue smoking, you just sort of swim in the marijuana. <laughs> And so I would, I would come back from the library and I would discover my, my roommate and some of his friends sitting in the room hotboxing. And all of my clothes smelled like marijuana. And people knew that I was going to mass regularly. They knew that <laughs> I was a Catholic. And they would say, <laughs> what do Catholics do at mass? <laughs> Only years later, was I able to uh, analyze this from a scientific point of view. And at the time, when I was in university, all I can say is, I remember having discussions with my roommate about his hotboxing and so on. And, and he would defend it. He would say that he was much more creative when he smoked marijuana. And he showed me one of the papers that he wrote. And ordinarily, you know, when we read a paper, the, the writing goes this way. His writing went this way, and then it went down the page. <laughs> and I was turning the page to try to understand what he said. And it did not make sense, perhaps because I had not smoked. <laughs> now, an anonymous tip came to the authorities in the university, and then suddenly I had the room to myself. <laughs> so what are we to make of marijuana? And what are we to make, in general, of what I will call psychoactive drugs? This is my topic and my question. And it may seem as if this is only a contemporary question, but as, as early as the 1800s, already in France, they had been using cannabis. They had received it, but they would actually take it orally in France. And the famous poet Baudelaire spoke about his cannabis inject, uh, ingestion, and he would call it an artificial paradise. An artificial paradise. Le paradis artificial. His concern was that when he used the marijuana, it made him a worse poet. And therefore, for him, it was dangerous to his artistic life. Now, recreational marijuana is one of the most widely used drugs in the world. In the United States, at least, at least half of children who are the age of 17 or 18 claim to have used it at least once. 6% report using it daily. Between 2000 and two, uh, 2000, uh, 2007 and 2010, marijuana users increased over three million people, so now there are approximately, now, 25 million users, but it's increasing continually because, perhaps you've heard in the news, at each election cycle, they legalize the use of recreational marijuana, no longer just for medicinal use. And so in my state, I'm from California, this is now legal. 
And so for us, it is a major question because it turns out that as more continue to use, more questions arise. Studies have shown that recreational marijuana is popularly perceived as my roommate did, essentially harmless, perhaps a rite of passage, a way of entering into a deeper relationship with some friends. Is this common perception accurate? It's harmless. It's just something we do when we're with friends. What I'm going to do is provide an answer from the conceptual framework of St. Thomas Aquinas, but I'm also going to employ a lot of the biological research that has been performed on marijuana users. How does it affect their brain? How does it affect their nervous system and even their social life? In order to, to do this, I'm going to start with perhaps what may seem to be a digression, but is central to our topic. And I'm going to try to prove very briefly a single thesis. And the thesis is this. The purpose of our body is to facilitate and manifest our rational life. Our body has a purpose. We know that our body is organized and that our material, that as we receive material into ourselves, as we eat, as we drink, as we respirate, it, it changes the material and incorporates it into ourselves. As we say, you are what you eat. And this order of the food and of the drink is directed toward the healthy functioning of the person as a whole. The definition of poison is something that harms my body. And so if I take bleach and I start to drink it, this is going to affect the functioning of my organs. It's going to affect eventually my life if I take too much. And so we can say that the, the order of the body is directed to the whole of the person. Consider any given organ, the heart. We define the heart as that which pumps the blood. And the purpose of pumping the blood isn't simply for the good of the heart. It allows every portion of the body to be full of oxygen. And the oxygen then helps the body to continue to live because the respiratory element is essential to all of the functions of the cells. All, every single cell in your body requires oxygen in order to survive. So my lungs receive the air, they expel CO2, and then the, the heart allows the oxygen to circulate. So there's an order, there's a direction, we would say a teleology to the organ of the heart. There's a telos, an end, to the lungs. And likewise, all of the organs fitted together. If they did not have an end, the doctor would not know how to diagnose when you have a problem. You come and you say, well, I, I'm having trouble here. Unless he knows that there are different organs in your interior, how could he know even possibly how to address them? So we have to be convinced then that the body has an order and the order has each particular organ with an end and each organ fitted together works for the whole. Now what is the good of the whole? If we think about every order has a cause to it. The reason why the heart works has a cause. The reason why the lungs work, this has a cause as well. No being is self-sufficient beyond 
the source of its life and the source of its cause. So chaos is a state of high disorder. When we enter a gas into a room, such as smoke, this smoke will dissipate into the room until it fills that volume evenly. What it does is it goes from a chaotic state of existing in one place, exiting the mouth of a person, but eventually this smoke will evenly fill the volume. And so every space more or less has these molecules bouncing around, but creating a bounded area. Now the body is not a chaotic pile of parts. As I've just illustrated, the parts has functions, and the functions can be analyzed, and they can be known. What is it that keeps the body together? We can't say it's just the heart, because sometimes the heart ceases to function, and doctors can come and allow the heart to continue to function, right? They can perform an act of electricity on your chest, and your heart will start to pump. We say, well, there's something that makes the heart to pump. There's something that makes the lungs to operate. And, and as the previous talk was saying, well, yes, we have a body, but we also have a soul. And so if there is a goal to our, all the parts of our body, the body itself is directed toward helping the soul to perform its functions. Think about the nature of the brain. We know that there are different layers to the brain, right? This is something um, I think that was slightly addressed. And you have the brain stem, the very bottom of the brain. And the brain stem is going to control the most basic aspects of your person. So your reflexes, the heart beating without you thinking about it, the lungs pumping. This can operate even without your conscious thought. But we know that the higher level, sometimes they call it the lizard brain, is what controls our lower functions. Then they say we have a mammal brain. The mammal brain is that which has emotions because apes and dogs and cats, they have emotions, right? Um, I remember um, when I was a child, there was a neighbor who had a dog and, and the dog was always sitting in the window waiting for someone to come by. And I would walk by and the dog would follow me like this. And I'd walk by again and it would start to bark and, um, and the owner, he would always yell at the dog. And, bad dog, stop barking. And I started to realize that I could make the, the owner do something if I could make the dog to bark. <laughs> and so, and so I, would, I would make faces, you know, and the dog would bark and the owner would, would get mad. And, um, and I felt like I was training the owner. <laughs> so, we know that, that dogs have emotions and people have emotions. And what this means is that we share a portion of a similar brain structure. This is a very simple account. But we, we have a higher portion of the brain. And the higher portion of the brain, the neocortex, is the outermost layer of the brain, the gray matter, and especially the, the frontal lobes, which help us to perform thought, and it helps to make decisions. They are associated with language. And we know that if we're emotional, our higher brain can help to moderate our emotions. That's the goal, right? And so the man with his higher brain is able to try to moderate the emotions of, of the dog. And this is how we operate with ourselves, is sometimes we have reflexes, we don't think about them. Sometimes we have emotions that we feel are out of control. 
But to be in control means to have our rational brain telling our body what is the right way to act, what is the right way to operate. What does this mean? This means that the, the body as a whole, the goal of the body, is to allow the, the highest part of ourselves to perform its right function. We know that if we're too emotional, that it's very difficult for us to have a good relationship with other people. If, if you feel like someone is always barking at you, how can you have a conversation? We had a Dominican, and, um, and his, uh, his nickname was Mad Dog. <laughs> because he was always talking. And, and we would say, if I cannot have a, a conversation, then we have to go to the level of emotion. And right now my emotion is angry. <laughs> and so this shows us that we know that our, if, in order for our emotions to act well, they have to be moderated by the mind. And therefore, the goal of the emotions is to allow the mind to function well. Because on the other hand, if we do not use our emotions in our relationship, this is also a problem. This is why very often in science fiction movies, you will always have the alien who has no emotions. Right? You ever know this? this he's always sort of, his face is blank. He has nothing to, to respond to. And you always have to explain to this alien why something is happening. He says, why are they crying? I do not understand. And then they explain, well, this is what people do when they feel sad. And then the alien, oh, yes, okay. Now, what does this mean? It means for us to be human, we have to engage our emotions, but in a reasonable way. In a reasonable way. So the body then helps us to be fully human, but the brain and the higher part of our soul helps our emotions not to become too animal. Essentially, then, we can say that human integration allows the soul and the body to interact together in such a way that the rationality helps to moderate and to elevate and to dignify the emotions and the rest of the body. When we say that someone is insane, it comes literally from the Latin insanus, a lack of health. And this is a lack of mental health because they are no longer allowing their rationality to act according to its proper function. Some insane people make bad judgments. They are always paranoid. They are worried. In the United States, it's very common to worry that the government is trying to, to kill you. <laughs> this is why many of us carry guns. <laughs> another, another insanity, though, is not only to make erroneous acts of judgment, it can be a lack of reasoning at all. Someone who has a psychotic episode, they have extreme bouts of happiness, they're always laughing, and they run around and they're too joyful. You say, this person is insane. Because sometimes life is sad, and sometimes to be sad is appropriate. So they are insanus. Because their mind is not properly working, their emotions are not properly working, and therefore they are not properly working. And similarly, when we say mental health, mental, this comes from men's, the mind. When you have good mental health, when you are thinking well, when you know the truth, when you love what is good, this can have an effect on, on the body and can help you to live in a happy way. So with this then, when we come to look at recreational marijuana use, 
and the use of any drug, we have to recognize that it is going to either to help the human being to be dignified, it is going to play a part in this rational emotionality that we have, or it's going to somehow undermine it. And the question is, what does science and reason tell us about this use? Now, numerous studies have shown that there may be some medical benefits to marijuana, and I'm not interested in discussing the medical issue. Because we know that there are many medicines that, if used recreationally, could be harmful to the person. For instance, even now, there are some uses of drugs that we know are sold on the street, and these drugs are used for anesthetics. They allow people to not feel pain if they go into surgery, but people use these in a bad way. So, as Catholics, we would never say that you cannot use anesthetics. We, what we would say is it's inappropriate to use them in a way that undermines your overall dignity. So I don't want to speak about medicine use because people claim that marijuana is helpful for hypertension, epilepsy, even some sorts of cancer. What I'm more interested in is the use of it for fun, the recreational side. And here St. Thomas Aquinas is very helpful because he speaks about the virtue of having fun. Did you realize that? Very often um, we think of being good as following rules we don't want to follow. <laughs> Aquinas says, actually, people have to have fun. This is necessary for your life. You have to enjoy life. But you have to do it in a way that helps you to be a full person. And so, play can be good or bad. And the virtue of play is called eutropalia. And it has many benefits. It helps to facilitate your, your rest, your relaxation, even your strengthening. Here's what St. Thomas Aquinas says. He says, just as man needs bodily rest for the body's refreshment after long work, because you cannot always be at work, so likewise, the soul needs rest. And he says things like play, telling jokes, well, these are part of the soul's delight. And so it's necessary sometimes to play in order to, to do good for the soul. In fact, sometimes it is your duty to have fun. Well, that's nice. And um, I, I hope that, that, you, you, that you followed your duty before Lent. That, um, you know, before, before Lent began, it's very appropriate. And this is why it's a very Catholic thing to do on Mardi Gras, for instance, Right? To have fun with your friends, to eat too much, to have um, jokes that you're telling, and um, you get to a little fight, and then you say, okay, it's all over in Lent. <laughs> so what he's pointing out then is that pleasure is made in order to attract us to the good. And so there are some principles then to know whether or not our recreation is in accordance with our reason and with our nature as a whole. First, we should not pursue any pleasure, he says, that is indecent or injurious to ourselves. If, if the pleasure is harming ourselves, obviously, this is not going to be beneficial. Secondly, we should not pursue a pleasure that destroys the harmony and the balance 
of our life and of our mind. I I know some people that um, they, they say to me in the confessional, they say, Father, whenever I read the news, I get very angry. I'm angry at the politicians. And I say, well, one, maybe you should go into politics and you'll see it's difficult. And I say, but two, maybe you should not read the news. <laughs> because sometimes we read things and it, we thought it was recreation, but it actually, it does not bring us refreshment, right? It actually disturbs us. It makes us more off balance before we did it than it would otherwise. So, so the third is that we should not seek delight of the soul in a way that is inappropriate to our person or to our occasion. And an example of this is, well, it, on a Friday in Lent, right? So if, if we say it's a good thing to sacrifice sometimes, sometimes it is actually good for us to have a little bit of penance. And so it's, a, it's perfectly fine outside of Fridays to eat meat. But on the Friday, well, this is the time where we should be eating fish. And so any kind of pleasure that I give myself, well, this has to be appropriate to me and to my occasion. And likewise, there are some pleasures that are going to be appropriate to our states of life. If you are married, there's some pleasures appropriate to that state. If you're celibate, there's some pleasures appropriate to that state. Hmm? You know, there are pleasures that only celibates can have. It's, I can shut my door and no one can come in. (laughs) So if we violate these principles when we're using drugs or for any other pleasure, then in the end, we have engaged in vicious rather than virtuous pleasure. So now let's look at what does science tell us about recreational marijuana use. Now human flourishing, as as I've said, involves the flourishing and the good of our body and soul. And so this complete analysis requires that we actually look at the physical effects of marijuana. And not simply anecdotal effects, but we'll look at anecdotal effects also. What do people report they feel? So first, though, it's very helpful just to dig down into the biology for a second of what does marijuana do. And we know that marijuana has many different ingredients, but perhaps people are probably most familiar with this ingredient that gives the most psychoactive effect, although it is not the only one, is very often called D9-THC, or just THC. When someone smokes marijuana, this THC makes its way from the lungs and it goes into the bloodstream. And from the bloodstream, as we've already said, we know that the blood is going to cycle throughout the body. As it circulates, THC binds to cannabinoid receptors. And this is in in various organs, the brain chiefly, but another of others, as we will see. It's very interesting. Part of our body's endocannabinoid system means that these molecules are part of our regulation of our emotions and our cognitive behaviors. THC, at times, can overstimulate our receptors and therefore give people this high or stoned feeling. Often, this high is accompanied by other effects. People have reported 
sensory distortion, sometimes hallucinations, panic or anxiety, poor coordination, lowered reaction time, inhibited learning and memory, increased heart rate. What's interesting is that cannabis use actually decreases our cortical, cortical dopamine levels, which means that if you have dopamine in, in your cortex, that enables your brain synapses to perform their, their functions. So if you lower these chemicals in the brain, you have lower dopamine, well this means that it's harder for you to think. This is why when people are high, it's also difficult to write a good essay, although they feel like it's genius. <laughs> now these are short-term effects. What are some of the long-term effects and how do these relate to the overall well-being of the user? Now, physiologically, marijuana has numerous adverse effects on the body. So on the one hand, cannabinoids are linked to immunosuppression. That is, it's, they lower our ability to respond to harmful toxins in our environment. And so, surprisingly, this means that in the long run, much use of marijuana lowers a person's ability to fight off infection and disease. Chronic marijuana use has been shown to lead to extensive airway injury and impairment, and it even alters the function of our lungs. What's interesting is very often people will try to contrast tobacco use with marijuana, and they'll say, well, marijuana doesn't affect our esophagus, it doesn't give us lung cancer. Well, we know that they're, they're slightly different chemicals operating, and usually when people smoke a cigarette, they do so through a filter. And the filter itself has certain negative effects because the glass in the filter also affects the lungs. Now, if you use an unfiltered cigarette, that's closer to a better analogy with marijuana when most people are uh, smoking from a bong or they make their own little cigarettes. So you don't have to worry about the filter effect. And also, Tobacco, typically they mix tar in with the tobacco, and this has its own effects. So marijuana is without the tar. But as I've noticed, or as I've said, that nevertheless, despite not having tar, despite not having a filter, marijuana has still been shown to cause bronchitis and emphysema. It affects the lungs, making them more weak and making it more difficult for you to breathe. It has long-term associations with pulmonary diseases. And therefore, it can actually cause sometimes myocardial infarction, which is called heart attack. At times, it's actually been shown to amplify the risk of stroke. Strikingly, however, there's still insufficient evidence regarding the mortality rate associated with marijuana. How does it kill people? And part of that is because one, in places where it has been um, legalized in Holland, they're more concerned about the brain effects, which I'll talk about in a second. They're less concerned about overall mortality rates. And one of the reasons why is because, um, at least in other countries like the US, the only cohorts that they have studied using marijuana long-term were already in an older population. And so it, it, it's harder to rate how much it affects them if they're already close to death. Okay, now, here's, here's what um, we can say about some adverse effects on frequent or long-term users of marijuana. 
Now, if we compare them to other controls, as I've pointed before, it has uh, negative short-term effects on your memory and on the use of your mind. It has long-term effects as well. Even users who do not appear or they report not feeling intoxicated by marijuana, they think the high is over, they still continue to manifest impairments over an entire week after using it. Why? Well, because unlike some other drugs like alcohol, when, when we ingest alcohol, our body quick, quickly synthesizes it and within 48 hours it's gone from our system. Whereas marijuana actually bonds to our fat cells. And that means that it can remain within our body for a long time. As I said, they've measured negative cognitive effects for a week, but sometimes they can actually measure that there's still some THC in your fat cells even a month after having smoked. Now, the, the effect may be negligible, it's hard to say, but it's interesting that it's kind of in there, just kind of hanging out. Now, another, for me, interesting effect about marijuana is that it shows to negatively affect our way of perceiving pleasure. Remember, this was a key element in knowing whether or not something is going to be beneficial or harmful to this virtue of play. How does it affect our pleasure? Well, the phenomenology of marijuana use is similar to self-reported uses of addictive drugs. So on the one hand, it can reinforce pleasurable feelings. So if people smoke marijuana, they feel high, and then they do something and they feel happy about it. I remember, um, you know, it, I, I would come into the room and they're all sitting around. They only tell half a joke and then they're all laughing. <laughs> So one, you recognize that they didn't need the end of the joke because their rational mind wasn't working all that well. And then the second part was it just it made them more excitable and everything seemed funny when they were smoking. And so what happens is it's this, it's this reset of your pleasure threshold. So you feel like when you're high, everything is feeling much better. And then when you're not smoking, it makes everything feel not normal, but even lower. This is the effect of most drug abuse in general, right? This happens also with alcohol abuse, is um, if, if alcohol can help to amplify people's feelings, of course, some people, they feel more depressed when they drink. Generally, you know, um, this is just anecdotal, but you know, the further north you go uh, in the world, then um, the more people drink and the worse they feel about it. <laughs> and so then, so then, then they drink some more <laughs> to forget how bad they feel. And, um, and, and so it can amplify, drinking can amplify these feelings. Well, in general, people report that marijuana use amplifies pleasurable feelings. But when you're not using marijuana, then it makes it feel as if just you're normal. Before people would have reported feeling okay, now they feel kind of like there's the spices missing from life. There's no longer fireworks and sunsets. There's the dull, cloudy day until you smoke again. And this is generally the effect of drug addiction, is that people start to feel as if in order to feel good, they have to have these intense experiences. This is why even in the world, we, continue, we continually seek more exciting behaviors because what was exciting last week now is ordinary. And so we continually seek riskier behaviors, more intense experiences, and this leads us into a spiral of no longer being content with what used to give us ordinary pleasures.
in, in Fatima, I was so content and happy just to be outside of Rome. <laughs> I, I love Rome. It's a beautiful city, but it is chaos. And horns are honking, and people are yelling, and the birds are squawking. And, and, and there in Fatima, I just heard beautiful birds. <laughs> and there are flowers. And it was quiet. And I thought, this, I do not need drugs. I, <laughs> I just have this normal experience, and it's wonderful. But what happens then is with these desires for delight is marijuana can start to hijack your pleasurable experience of everything else. And so people have reported that the use of marijuana reduces their ability to enjoy things like food, relationships, and instead they feel like the only time they can appreciate these things is when they're high. Now, among the most significant cognitive and psychiatric dangers posed by marijuana is its association with psychosis. And here I'm going to define psychosis as a state of mind characterized by the inability to distinguish between what is real and what is not real. Marijuana makes it more difficult for people to know what is reality. The risk of developing psychosis roughly doubles for regular cannabis users. Doubles. It's not clear quite why. On the, on the one hand, some suggest that cannabis use is a causal factor for schizophrenia. And of course, we know that schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenia is one form of psychosis. On the other hand, people suggest that, well, more schizophrenics or people with those predispositions are attracted to marijuana. But the question would be why? It seems more clear, I would say, that it actually is making possible a schizophrenic reaction to the world. In one study, Swedish investigators uncovered a dose-response relationship between frequency of cannabis use and risk for schizophrenia. And they looked at this for over 50,000 people who are using marijuana regularly. And so these kinds of studies have been corroborated throughout the world. Greater use of marijuana, greater risk of psychosis. And this means you have trouble identifying what really happened to you, what didn't happen to you. Was this a dream? Was this a hallucination? Did you really write a good essay? Or are you fooling yourself? Right? All of this starts to become a part of their mental world. Well, why? Well, one reason why, very interestingly, is that marijuana use has been shown to decrease the brain mass of regular users. It actually makes your brain shrink. For a Dominican, that's a very sad thing. <laughs> I, I, this is one of the reasons why um, getting drunk is always a problem, is because it reduces your ability to make a rational decision. Okay, so your rational mind is no longer operating. You start to act in an emotional way, and suddenly your, your brain has trouble even performing ordinary cognitive functions. And so this becomes the case even more so with the use of marijuana. Because we can, you can have a small amount of alcohol and not become drunk. But the goal of smoking marijuana, as we will see, 
is to become high. That's the goal. So now let's look at, now that we have seen um, this sort of biological account of marijuana, now let's look at this from a virtue perspective. And I'm going to um, give a little more definition to what I've called intoxication. So intoxication from alcohol is what, in English we just say, it's drunkenness. But having a high is the same thing. It's just caused by a different material. So I'm going to say that drunkenness in alcohol is the same as being high in marijuana. These, these are just the words describing the same mental event, the lack of rationality, but caused by different substances. What is intoxication? Well, it consists in the inordinate desire for the lack of reason. An intoxicant is an ingested substance. It gives you a feeling of sometimes elevation, exhilaration, delight, depending on the chemical composition of the material. Cocaine gives one kind of high, one kind of delight, and marijuana does it in a different way. Now, intoxicants are particularly powerful because they, they affect the brain. And so what this means is that when a person is completely intoxicated, so we can say there are different levels, complete intoxication is when the use of reason is completely impeded. You can't use your brain at all. You're just at that point before blackout. So sometimes they talk about this in terms of ranges of colors. So blackout is black, it's gonna be on this side, and then right before that is the, the dark red. And the dark red represents that your reason is hardly operable at all, right? So um, things that you can ordinarily do when, when your mind is clear, perform mathematical operations, remember where your car keys are. When someone is very intox intoxicated, they can't even perform that. Their, their brain is, it's, it's very difficult. Their emotions are still operable more or less. Incomplete in intoxication then would be closer to the orange color. And in incomplete intoxication means that your mind is altered, well, noticeably, maybe for a short period of time or to a small degree, but a person in the orange range still has some mastery over himself. And they can choose to do things or not to do things. So their reason is not overcome by the intoxicant. In contrast, someone who has this high level of intoxication sometimes can't even recognize the difference between right or wrong, and they can't even remember what they did, right? People report these kinds of uh, experiences, intoxication, a lot. They'll say, I don't even remember. It was before blackout, but it was, it was in this dark red in such a way that, well, you wake up the next morning, what did I do? How did I get here? And you know, there are movies that describe this. Now, a person would not be in completely intoxicated if, for example, you can walk, if you can speak, even if your mind is fuzzy, you're not in this complete intoxication level. If you're talking and speaking, then your, your mind is, is operable in some way. Now, when your lips start to become slurred and, right, and speech becomes more difficult, then you're noticing that you're having a physiological reaction. You don't have command over your body as much. And so this is pointing us to how not only do you lose 
mastery over your body, but eventually your mind, your will. Sacred scripture speaks very much against intoxication and drunkenness. The book of Proverbs says this, who has sorrow, who has complaining, who has redness of eyes, those who drink wine too much. And then it gives some advice. It says, do not look at wine when it sparkles in the cup and goes down too smoothly because it will bite you like a serpent and sting like a snake. Your eyes will do strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down under the sea. You are sunk. You will say, they struck me, but I didn't feel it. They beat me, and I didn't awake. Where can I find another drink? <laughs> That's scripture. And in fact, I think this brilliantly describes many of the detrimental effects of intoxication. It harms the physical organ and endangers your health. It gives you redness of eyes. It fascinates you, though. There's something interesting about it because it represents leaving yourself, so it sparkles. It harms you in general by biting and stinging you, and it creates a false reality. Your eyes begin to see things. It dulls your physical senses, especially touch, which is why if they beat you, you don't feel it, and eventually it creates dependency and addiction. Where can I find my next drink? And so this is why Christ himself, the words of Jesus, he says in the Gospel of Luke, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and too much care. Now, in order to understand this from a philosophical perspective, we can say that our rationality then is as I pointed out, what characterizes us and what separates us from the beasts. Dogs, apes can feel emotion, they have dreams, but we have rationality. And so what happens then is when our rational faculties lower, our ability to make prudent decisions, to contemplate the highest things, to meditate on eternal truths, these become difficult and then finally entirely destroyed because we're seeking a bodily pleasure. St. John Paul II describes the difference between temperate drinking of alcohol and drug abuse in the following way. Quote, he says, whereas the moderate use of alcohol as a drink does not clash with moral prohibitions, only its abuse is condemned. He says, in contrast, taking drugs is always illicit because it involves a renunciation of thinking, willing, and acting like a free person. I'm going to repeat that because it's so important. He says, the use of these drugs is always illicit because it involves a renunciation of thinking, willing, and acting as a free person. And this is unjustified. So pre precisely because of this, St. Thomas Aquinas said that Drunkenness itself is a grave sin. And he points out, and we all know this, that it can be the source of many other sins. 
So what, sometimes people try to um, escape you know, the, the, the morality of things by getting drunk first. And they will say, well, you know, I was drunk, what can I do? St. Thomas Aquinas says, if you are the source of the cause, you are also the source of the effect. If you chose to get drunk, then you're still culpable. You're culpable for what you did. And, and although that particular action you may not remember, you are still the source of the cause of the drunkenness in the first place. And therefore, there's still part of your own guilt as a part of that. Now, what's interesting is that when we look at recreational marijuana, pot smokers often fall, uh, uh, pr provide the following reasons for why they use it. They say it's sometimes to relax, sometimes to relieve stress, and sometimes to experience pleasure. Now, we know that relaxing and relieving stress are perfectly fine, and experiencing pleasure is good, too, in a moderate way. And from this perspective, it, would, it may seem that marijuana use is perfectly reasonable. But what I'd like to notice is that as marijuana becomes legalized, what happens is that the ingredients in marijuana are now becoming more and more focused on THC, this ingredient which provides the psychoactive effects that which makes a person more prone to schizophrenia, that which makes it more difficult for them to know reality, and that which makes it more difficult for them to experience other kinds of pleasures. A medical, a medical researcher in favor of marijuana for recreational use says this, for recreational users, access to marijuana has always been about getting intoxicated. It's not simply in order to feel relaxed. It's, in a way, to escape reality. To escape reality. And so this is why the Pontifical Council for the Family rightly says, all too often, we, don't, we, we do not want to understand these issues. And we forget it's not the product that creates the addiction. It's the person who feels the need for it. What is it in a person's soul that makes them want to escape reality? Why is it that we want to, as it were, turn our brains off and feel these pleasures in an unrestricted manner? <clears throat> is it because we're living in a chaotic world? Is it because we feel sad? Because we're disappointed at life? Is it because we feel as if life has no meaning and no purpose, as if we're going nowhere? If these are the reasons, the solution is not a chemical solution. We have to search outside of the material world to find spiritual meaning. And this is why very often a correspondence exists between drug abuse and a person's lack of spiritual maturity. It's a pathology of the spirit that makes people seek what Baudelaire called the artificial paradise. So we have to say then that reality is an adventure and it calls for our engagement. When God put us into this world, he did so precisely so that we could actualize our entire person. And this means that we shouldn't try to 
create artificial worlds in which we can exist and have our fun without recognizing that our bodies are part of our person and themselves participate in our dignity. Drugs can be seen as a pseudo-mystical world, our longing for the eternal, but now we're settling for the mundane. And this is why Baudelaire ultimately gave up the use of hashish entirely. Even aside from religious reasons, he just said, it makes me a worse poet, and therefore it's going to destroy and dull the highest part of my creativity. They take us out of the world in which we live, out of our body, which can experience pain and pleasure, out of the world of deep emotions and giving us false emotions, out of the world of responsibility, out of the difficult but beautiful world of ultimate happiness. This is a world we, not, we should not try to escape, but rather enter into, to plunge into the deep. The only dreadful thing is to be content with what is less. And therefore, we should seek Christ, because in Him, He is the only one who can give us our true treasure, who can find our real reason for existence. And this is why the words of Christ take on an extraordinary meaning with the drug user, because He says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Thank you.